Let's take our scriptures and turn to Matthew 27 this morning. 27th chapter of that first gospel in our New Testaments, the gospel of Matthew. And we'll begin this morning by reading the text. And we're going to start actually one verse before where we left off last time. We're going to start in chapter 27, verse 26, and read through verse 44. You remember that in the context, Jesus had been on trial before the Roman governor Pilate. And in verse 26, we read that he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry the, his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Back in chapter 20, in verse 16, Jesus had specifically predicted that he would be, quote, mocked and flogged and crucified. And all three of those predictions came true in this text. They came to pass just as it is recorded for us here. Now, you... I'm sure have heard through the years some about Roman cruelty 
to convicted criminals, especially insurrectionists. There were actually a number of different kinds of Roman floggings from the relatively minor for lesser infractions all the way to very severe scourgings that usually accompanied uh, crucifixion. In that kind of scourging, the victim was stripped naked and tied down so that he was unable to move with his back exposed and a couple of burly Roman soldiers would take turns uh, lashing that person repeatedly with a whip made of braided leather uh, with usually multiple ends that were often embedded with bits of uh, glass or metal or, or, or bone or something that was designed to cause great um, affliction and to rip open really the flesh off the back of the person who was being um, lashed. Josephus and some of the other ancient writers talk about having witnessed these kinds of Roman lashings. And it's just something that we can hardly imagine, perhaps because we're so far removed from that culturally. Um, many of these people went into shock from loss of blood. Uh, the ancient writers record that some of them died while they were being whipped. It was that kind of severity or that shortly after being untied from the post, they passed away. Our Lord, apparently, when you do a harmonization of the Gospels, it seems like our Lord endured two of those scourgings, perhaps a more mild form in the beginning as Pilate sought to appease the people and release him. And then in the end, that... Um, scourging that to us is almost unthinkable. Um, then the Bible says that he was brought to the place of crucifixion and he was crucified. Crucifixion is, of course, a most cruel and humiliating way for someone to die. A person would be stripped and tied to a cross or nailed sometimes to a cross as our Lord was, John tells us. And they would be left to basically hang there publicly for hours or days sometimes, the records indicate, that people would just suffer. It was, it was this kind of extended suffering that a person would go through and just ultimately um, it could be sped up by the severity of the beating that the person received ahead of time or by some other uh, means, but often it was a very slow and painful death from exposure and exhaustion and ultimately often asphyxiation, uh, like being sort of slowly choked to death. 
And this was the death our Lord died. And all of this was to demonstrate to us for all time the ugliness of sin, the wages of sin, to to sin against a holy God, the God who is only righteous and good, who has given us every good thing to enjoy, to ignore, to rebel, to sin against a God like that. This is for all time a demonstration of what that kind of rebellion deserves. The Bible makes it clear that Christ died in the place of sinners. He died in their stead. God imputing the sin of those who believe in Christ onto the Lord Jesus so that He is charged for their sins and pays the price. All in order that you and I might be forgiven. That God could look at us and say, not guilty, and Himself still be righteous. God could do that because the debt was paid, and it was paid in full. Jesus Christ drank the full measure of the wrath of God against sin for those who put their faith and trust in Him. But the flogging that Jesus endured and the crucifixion as horrific as they were, are are really not the focus of Matthew's Gospel. It's interesting as you come to this text, isn't it? Because when we think of the crucifixion, that is what we think of the most, usually. The physical suffering and pain that our Lord endured. And it certainly was intense. And in in no way does the Scripture minimize or gloss over it. But what Matthew does is to focus on something else. You see, he really, he really treats both the flogging and the crucifixion which Jesus has prophesied just in a short verse. Verse 26, if you'll notice in the text, this is all you have about the scourging. It just says, Pilate, having scourged Jesus, delivered Him over to be crucified. And then down in verse 35, you have the only real reference to the horrible acts of crucifixion when it says that when they had crucified Him, They parted his garment. Everything else that we read is focusing on something different. And I want to show you this morning what it is that this text is highlighting. The Spirit inspires Matthew to focus on the mocking of the Savior. The mocking of the Lord. You see this five times in the text. You may even want to grab a pen or pencil or a highlighter and just underline or highlight these in your text. In verse 29, we read that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, mocked Him. In verse 31, it says that when they had mocked Him, there's the word again, they stripped Him. And in verse 39, there's a different word, but a synonym, that those who passed by derided Him in a mocking fashion. And then in verse 41, the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked Him. 
And then finally, down in verse 44, the very last verse of our text, it says that the robbers who were crucified with him, they also reviled him in the same way. So again and again, this is what Matthew is emphasizing, and this is what God wants us to meditate on today. I know that because that's what God inspired. That's my message for you this morning, is to meditate on and to take away what we're supposed to take away from the mocking of our Lord Jesus. The Spirit uses three different terms, three different Greek terms in this text to describe that ridicule. They are synonyms, and they are used somewhat interchangeably in the different gospel accounts, but I want to give them to you. And if you have an ESV, they're translated in three different ways, which is helpful. First, you have the word mock in verses 29, 31, and 41. This is a word that means to ridicule, to scoff, to make fun of something. You understand that? And then you have in verse 44 the word revile. Now this is a more serious-minded word. Not making fun or making light of something, but really to seriously sort of chide or to reprimand or to reproach someone. And then you have in verse 39, in verse 39, the word deride. And this is perhaps the most sober of all the words in its connotation. It means to slander or to defame or to speak profanely of what really ought to be sacred or special, holy things. It's the term, the Greek term, blasphemeo, from where we get our English word blaspheme, right? And this is, of course, the very thing that Jesus himself was accused of doing. Remember that? Back in chapter 26, the high priest said, we have heard this blasphemy. What more do we need to hear? And of course, in their in their conception, it was that Jesus, being a man, in their opinion, was making himself out to be, what? To making himself out to be God. But here they were looking at the very Son of God on the cross and ignoring his claims, refuting his claims, and making him out to be nothing more than a man and a guilty, evil man at that. And so this is the focus of this text and ought to be the focus of our attention this morning. Now, the Scripture describes the mocking of Christ at the hands of four different groups this morning. The first, we see that Jesus, our Savior, is mocked by the Roman soldiers. Verses 27 to 38. Of course, by the time that the text is is describing here, the trials are over, the Jewish trials and the Roman uh, trial. Jesus is no longer in the hands of any judicial body. He's in the hands of the Roman execution squad, basically. And they have a notorious prisoner in their hands, and that attracts the entire group. Uh, They all, the whole battalion, it says, gathers together to watch this spectacle. And I'm sure having a self-proclaimed king in their power these common soldiers, was kind of a, uh, a great sport, a great jest. And so 
the issue that captured Pilate's attention, that Jesus was the king, um, was what they made fun of in a kind of mock coronation, if you will. They're going to crown him the king. And so they take off his clothes once again. They strip him naked. Of course, kings are usually the best clothed people in the land, right? And so here is this great jest, this king with no clothes. And on his back they throw quickly one of the soldiers' scarlet-covered uh, scarlet colored uh, capes that does cheap stand-in for the purple robes of, of royalty. And for a crown, they fashion a wreath of thorns and they jam it down on his brow until blood runs down his face into his eyes and mouth. And they grab a, a reed from nearby and stick it into his hands as if it were his royal scepter. But instead of doing homage to the king, the Bible says that they saying, Hail, King of the Jews, then spit in his face and yanked the scepter out of his hand and hit him on the head with it. And it doesn't take... It's just an amazing thing that the Son of God had the self-control and the composure to endure such abuses. Finally, after this mock enthronement, they lead him out to the place of crucifixion. The traditional path is about a half a mile running from the fortress to the northwest side of the city walls there outside the city wall. But Jesus was presumably too weak to carry that cross beam that that the victims were usually required to carry. He carried it a ways and then perhaps stumbled and and was just from the beating, just physically could not stand up under the weight. And so using their powers of conscription, they pulled in one of the passers-by, a man by the name of Simon. We're told Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way. And, you know, you have to wonder why it is that the name is recorded for us for all time, this man who carried the cross of Christ. And perhaps a clue is given to us in Luke's Gospel, excuse me, Mark's Gospel, because Mark records even more information about this man. He says, this guy is the father of Alexander and Rufus. As if those names are supposed to mean something to, if not to us, to perhaps the first readers of that gospel. And you have to wonder if perhaps they themselves were believers, known to the community to whom the gospel of Matthew was first given. Or perhaps Simon even was a Christian, a follower, a disciple, or became a disciple in days following. All of which perhaps was looked back on as a reminder 
of the very words of the Lord who said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. This, in other words, is what a Christian does. He identifies with Jesus Christ even to the point of suffering. Are you a Christian? You identify with Jesus even to the point of suffering? Are you... Is he, does he mean that much to you? This is what this Jesus said will be characteristic of all true disciples. Well, they marched him to the place called Golgotha, a place of a skull, perhaps the traditional killing site there outside the city. And the Bible says that there they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, which when he tasted it, he would not drink of it. And it's not really clear exactly what's going on here. Perhaps some have thought that that gall is a term that might cover some uh, something that was put into the wine as a kind of sedative to sort of numb the person, um, which of course would not have been the soldier's initiative. They're, it doesn't seem to fit with their cruel uh, jests, but there is a tradition that the Jewish women did come and offer this kind of aid to those who were about to be crucified. And perhaps the soldiers conceded and, and allowed this to be given to our Lord. Or perhaps this was just another cruel jest by the soldiers to offer him a little wine for refreshment, that they, but they had mixed with it something that, that can only be described as gall. It was something extremely bitter. So bitter you just couldn't, you couldn't even drink it. As if to, to give him a little relief to his lips and then to yank it away, so to speak. Just another way to mock the Savior. Psalm 69 verse 21 had predicted this so long before. The psalmist said, They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. The soldiers took our Lord's clothes and divided them up at the bottom of the cross. And the nice pieces, they didn't want to separate, divide it, rip it up, and cast lots to see which person would get to take it. So here they have now stripped our Lord of every last possession, right? We say even down to the clothes on his back. I mean, there he is hanging absolutely emptied of everything. Held up to public shame. The kind of shame that you and I ought to receive for our sins to be so publicly exposed, for ourselves to be naked, as it were, before everyone to know every evil thing that we've ever done. And there hung the Savior in the shame and with everything stripped away from Him. But what what is ironic here? is that the soldiers who were so bent on mocking 
Christ actually fulfilled several prophecies of the Old Testament in very specific ways, right? We've already seen that. In fact, in verse 35, the King James Version adds this, that this happened that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they did cast lots. The oldest manuscript copies of the Bible that we know about don't include this statement in this place. Um, Possibly it was inserted in later days by a well-meaning scribe who wrote in the cross-reference and then that got copied on into other copies of the Scripture that were made in years after. But in any case, John himself in his Gospel is explicit about it. John 19 and verse 24 says this was to fulfill the Scripture. And he quotes the same passage, Psalm 22, which we read earlier in the service. They parted my garments or divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they did cast lots. And this is, this is no self-fulfilling prophecy, right? This wasn't Jesus and His disciples conspiring to fulfill this ancient prophecy so it looks like He was the Messiah. This was being done by Jesus' enemies. I mean, that, that's a pretty grand conspiracy when you get even your enemies to do exactly what you want them to do to fulfill very specifically these prophecies from hundreds of years before. Now, this was the work of God. And even the formal charge against Jesus that was traditionally written on a placard and put somewhere, sometimes it was hung around the person's neck as he carried the cross, and then it was sometimes put up on the cross so that all passers-by would know the crime for which this person is dying as a warning to them, and the charge that was placed upon Jesus Christ in mocking jest said this, This is Jesus the King, the King of the Jews. But once again, even in that, God was demonstrating His sovereignty in spite of their mocking irony. Even through their mockery. John says it this way in John chapter 19 and verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, No, don't write, He's the King of the Jews. Write, He said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate said what? What I have written, I have written. You see that God will glorify Himself even through and even in spite of unwitting sinful men. That's what you have to believe in order to endure something like this. This is what our Lord believed, that God was sovereign over all, that He could entrust Himself to God. This is what every Christian has to believe if he's going to endure mockery and suffering on behalf of Christ, is that God is sovereign even through and in spite of unwitting sinful men. Secondly, we see in this text the mockery of the passers-by. Verse 39. Verse 39 says, And those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And once again, we should see the irony here, right? The very statement that they find so unbelievable that he'll 
tear down the temple. If you tear it down, he'll rebuild it in three days. The very statement that they find so unbelievable is actually being fulfilled right in front of them. The temple is being torn down, and three days later, he will be standing in front of them anew. The temple of God, right in front of them. The prophecy being fulfilled. But this is the way it is with with unbelievers. It, It is a blindness. This unaware irony is the blindness of those who refuse to give careful and serious attention to what our Lord says. And that is the way of the world. The world doesn't understand the fulfillments of the Scripture. The world doesn't understand our our faith in the the testimony of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems misplaced to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul tells us that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. God says, I will thwart. And of course, that's exactly what he's doing. He is blinding their eyes. They don't even see that the prophecy of our Lord is being fulfilled as they speak. This is why Jesus spoke in parables, isn't it? He spoke in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. That those who are unwilling to see and unwilling to hear would be unable to, uh, to see and hear. This is what separates the spiritually earnest from the spiritually apathetic. How else can we explain the fact that people today who are otherwise very intelligent people that they live in God's world while this denying the very God who makes that world possible. Because they're blind. They're blind. And the blindness of these passers-by is manifest in their mockery. And thirdly, and you know, it's not just the Roman thugs that mock him or the common ignorant people of the countryside, but he is mocked thirdly by the Jewish leadership, the people who ought to have known better, those who ought to have been teachers of the law, who ought to have seen all of this Old Testament pointing so clearly to Jesus the Messiah. They also rejected him and mocked him. Verse 42, verse 42, they cry out, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of the Jews. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. So why doesn't God come and rescue his son? We would do that for our sons. Is God really his father? You just hear the mocking in their voice. Verse 42 echoes I think a common criticism of Christianity through the ages. The criticism is this. If God really is sovereign, right? Jesus really is the king. If God really is in control, then why is there evil in the world? Why doesn't he come down from the cross? 
undo this evil, right? If he's really sovereign, why is there evil? If he really is the king, why doesn't he come down from the cross? That's the question. It's a question that is echoed all through, all through history. And I want to ask you, why is it? If he really was the king, why didn't he come down? If God really is sovereign, why doesn't he do away with all evil, including the cross? And the answer is that the cross and all evil was part of the plan of God for the greater good of glorifying God's own mercy in this world. And faith, real faith, waits on God to reveal the greatness of His plan and trusts that God is about the revelation of the greatness of His mercy. Faith is willing to acknowledge that cutting short the plan of God for Jesus to come down from the cross would actually forfeit the greater good of salvation through the demonstration of God's grace. That was the mocking cry of the Jewish leadership. And if he is mocked by the, by the religious leaders on one end of the spectrum, then he's mocked on the other end of the spectrum as well. And you have finally the mocking by the robbers, the crucified robbers. Verse 44, they also reviled him in the same way. Luke chapter 23 goes into more detail about the mockery that came from one of the thieves on the cross. It says that one of the criminals, um, and by the way, the word criminal here is the same word that was used about Barabbas, who was charged with insurrection. Perhaps it was Barabbas that was meant for that middle cross originally. But now here is our Lord, and one of the thieves calls out to him, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself! Save yourself and save us. And you know what Jesus could have replied? I am. I am saving you. That is, if you would believe. And praise the Lord, one of them did. Amen? One of them, even even this great sinner, even a man whose sins are apparent to the world, finds forgiveness in his dying breath. He says, do you not fear God to the other man, seeing as you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserve the condemnation that's upon us. You know, that's the way you know that the gospel is really taking hold in your heart, right? When you say, I deserve all of the evil that comes into my life. I deserve it. And more. He says, we indeed justly, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Recognize the, the, the perfection and the righteousness of the Lord. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, today I tell you, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Amen? The vilest sinner who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. The, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. 
and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And that was true for that man that day. All of those sins washed away. He laid down his rebellion and for perhaps the first time in his life really acknowledged his own sin and guilt and found a righteous man, a righteous man suffering in the place of sinners. And I ask you this morning, are you a skeptic? Are you a mocker? If you would lay down your pride, if you would humble yourself like this man, then you also would find that there is great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to conclude this way. You know, what is the purpose of this text? Why all of this focus on the mockery of Jesus? What are we supposed to take away from this? What's the significance of this? And I think there are several things to bear in mind. One, that this demonstrates the way that sinners respond to the claim of sovereignty by our Lord. Because the thing that they mocked was this, that He is that he is the, the king. That's where, that's where it began to really run contrary to what they could accept. He's the son of God. He's the sovereign. He's the Lord. He is the rightful ruler of all. It is true, I think, that the plenty of people are willing to acknowledge that Jesus was a good man. I was in Israel many years ago, and I had a tour guide who was an unbelieving Jewish man who was more than willing to acknowledge the goodness of Jesus, that he was a good person, a gifted teacher, and a great leader. And there are plenty of people willing to acknowledge Jesus was a good man, but when you, when you press the claim that Jesus is Lord, right? When you say he's the king, he's the son of God, and you must submit to him, to his happy reign, his joyous reign, but you must lay down your rebellion and your determination to decide what you think is the right way and the, the wise path and, and just yield to him on everything. That's when people, that's when people resist. Right? Isn't it true? That was the point at which Jesus was mocked. They might concede that he was a good man, a rabbi, a teacher, but they could not stand this, that he was the Lord, that he was the King, that he's the Son of God. That's where you went too far. And of course, the Scripture bears this out. This is human nature. When when those kinds of claims are pressed, that's the way people respond. The second psalm is probably the most brilliant depiction of this in all the Bible. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed one, against His Messiah. And here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart. They view the rule of God as some kind of bondage, right? 
And they say, let's break off the shackles of God. Let's decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. Let's decide for ourselves what's best for us and for our society and our community. Let's decide for ourselves what's acceptable and not, and not have to listen to this God who tells us everything that, that in many cases we don't like. Let us break their shackles off of us and cast away their cords. And here's what the Bible says, that the Lord who sits in the heavens will laugh. Those who are mocking the Lord are themselves the objects of the Lord's derision. And the Lord says, (laughs) I have set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. And all of your shaking your fist in the face of the rightful king of the universe is not going to do any good. It's in vain that you imagine such a thing, he says. And the Lord says to the king on the throne, he says to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember what the people said to Jesus on the cross? If you are the son of God, save yourself. Why don't you rescue yourself? Why doesn't God rescue you? Jesus waited on the cross. He waited in the certainty of faith. He waited on his Father. And God the Father has begotten him. He has brought him to life, right? Isn't that what begotten means? Even from the dead, he brought him to life. And that's exactly the way the apostles looked at this text in Acts chapter 13. That's exactly the way Paul interprets this text in Romans chapter 1, that God declared Jesus to be the Son of God by raising him from the dead. That was God's declaration. That was the vindication of Jesus' authority and his claims all along. So, the psalm says, Psalm 2, So, all of you who are resistant to God's authority, be wise, be warned. Kiss the Son of God on the throne, lest He be angry when His wrath is quickly kindled and you perish. And then he ends by saying, But if you put your trust in Him, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. And I hope that's you. Your trust is in the King. You you, you are not relying on your own imagination to to try to make your way through this world or your own sense of what's going to work or what must be right, but you're willing to yield to the good and righteous and kind and gracious rule of the Savior. I think the second thing we ought to take away from this text is that it demonstrates to us that the greatest evil of the cross was not the physical suffering of our Savior, but it was the effrontery of mere human beings to be dismissive of the claims of the Son of God. That's the real unthinkable evil that took place at the cross. This is what the Spirit emphasizes in this text. The enemies of the cross of Christ mock our faith in the truth by demanding that God should vindicate Himself in ways that satisfy their own unbelieving perspective. Like they said to Him, if you are the Messiah, come down and then we will, what? Then we'll believe you. 
you come down. Satisfy us that this is the case. And you know, sometimes people say this in, in life today. You know, if, if God would just prove it, then I would believe him. You know, and, and, and it can shake the, the faith perhaps of a less mature Christian who wonders to himself, well, well, if God really does exist, why doesn't he prove it to people? I was talking a while back with a dear friend whose wife is a believer, but he's not. And he basically said this. If, he said, you know, if what you're saying is true, then I just wish God would give me some kind of sign. Why doesn't God just prove it? Do some kind of miracle? And then I'd believe. And of course, God has used miracles from time to time to confirm His Word. But friends, the truth is that signs and miracles don't convince those who reject what God has already revealed. They'll, I tr trust me on this, they'll find some way to explain it while still disbelieving God. Even though God sent them a miracle. Remember the rich that Jesus told about the rich man who died and went to hell? Who was given this view somehow of, of Abraham and the presence of, of God and says, you know, I have unbelieving brothers. Send someone to tell them so they don't come to this awful place where I am. And, and, and the answer was given... They have the Scripture. And if they don't believe the Scripture, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead to tell them the truth. But, but that is the mock, that is the, the accusation that's, that's thrown out there against Christianity all the time. Isn't it? If this is really true, why does it, if God's all-powerful, why doesn't He just show it? Why doesn't He prove Himself to my satisfaction? And then, you know, because I'm so wise and smart and intelligent, I'll figure it out and I will believe Oh, a person like that has no conception of their own depravity, do they? And no conception of the almighty nature of the one to whom they speak. More often than not, this demand for, this, for a sign is just an expression of unbelief. I think thirdly, we should take away from this that it demonstrates the familiar path of those who follow in Christ's steps. So what did our Lord endure? He endured mockery and chiding and even blasphemy. What should a follower of Christ expect? You answer me that. What should they expect? The same thing, right? Here's what the Scripture says. 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I can't believe it. I'm trying to live my Christian life. Why do the key things keep going wrong? Well, what did you expect? <laughs> You're living in the world that your Savior lived in. Don't be surprised when something, as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted... If you are reviled, if you're mocked for the name of Christ, then you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3. 
See, he says, see what kind of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. What amazing love that God should call us his sons and daughters. Amen? He says, see the kind of love that God has given to us that we should be called the sons of God, children of God, and so we are. Now, the reason why the world does not know us, does not recognize us as sons and daughters of God, it does not know us, is that it did not know Him. It didn't recognize the the only begotten Son of God. How how much more will it not acknowledge the, uh, the, the, the extended sons of God? So he says, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children right now. And what we will be, that is clearly revealed to be the sons of God, what we will be, glorified sons of God, is not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears in glory, we also will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. But right now, the world will not acknowledge Christian people as sons and daughters of God any more than the world acknowledged the Son of God when He stood before them and made that claim. This sets the familiar pattern for Christians all through the ages. In 1852, there was an ancient building that was unearthed in an excavation that was being done in Rome. And on the wall of this building, they found etched into the stone there a kind of ancient graffiti. In fact, it's called the Alexamenos Graffito. And on this wall, there is this bit of graffiti, and it is, in fact, the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in that picture, there is a cross with a figure on the cross, and standing at the foot of the cross is a man who is looking up at the cross in reverence. But instead of a man on the cross, it is the form of what appears to be kind of a naked donkey. Just a big donkey head, an ass's head. And inscribed crudely next to that drawing are these words, Alexamenos, worshiping his God. What our Lord endured was what his followers endured. That kind of mockery, dismissal, from the earliest days of his followers on right until now. The unbelieving world does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that we preached Christ crucified, And the message of the crucifixion of Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews. And it was folly to the Greeks. But to those who are being called by God, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, the unbelieving world is going to make light of your faith. Isn't that exactly what happened to our Lord? They mocked Him. They made light of Him. The unbelieving world is going to think of that your faith is a fairy tale, that it's just... It doesn't, it's not real. It's not scientific. It's, it's just a nice story. Maybe you, your faith will be considered a grand delusion. 
or maybe there will be a more serious reproach brought upon you. A more serious charge. And, and maybe some of us will, some of you will be formally or officially reprimanded at work, for example, for standing on the truths of the Scripture in some way. Or maybe, and I think the day is fast approaching, when Christians will basically be accused of a kind of blasphemy for standing against the secular orthodoxy of our day. In other words, every term that was used to describe what happened to Jesus on the cross is going to be applicable for those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And and this is not something that we ought to be unnecessarily fearful about. It is a fearful thing, of course. But it's something that we ought to look forward to with anticipation that in that moment, the Lord will grant the grace that we need. you believe that? That in that moment, the Lord will be sufficient. That He will give them the words to say in the moment when they need them. And that they will be able to endure in the same way our Lord endured. By looking forward to the joy that was set before Him. He endured the cross. And that's what your brothers and sisters have been doing ever since the days of our Lord. And perhaps we get to share in at least a small part of that. Our Savior walked the road of humiliation before us and we follow in His steps. And finally, I think this passage also demonstrates the unimaginable humility of divine love. John Calvin wrote that here is brightly displayed the inconceivable mercy of God toward us in bringing His only begotten Son so low on our account. This was also a proof which Christ gave of His astonishing love toward us, that there was no ignominy to which He refused to submit for our salvation. Friends, this was the Almighty Son of God who yet endured this humiliation and mocking so that you might be saved, so that I might be forgiven. And what determination on the part of the Father to provide our salvation, to give His Son up to endure this kind of humiliation. If you're a parent, maybe you can understand just a little bit of this, right? Have you watched your child mocked? Oh, that's just one of the cruelest things in the world, isn't it? To watch a child be bullied and picked on and abused by another person. And everything in your parent heart wants to just get up and bring justice to bear on their heads. And, and the Father, the Father in heaven, withheld all of that in order for His Son to suffer on our behalf what the indignities that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve. 
how deep the Father's love for us. Amen? How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Amen. Father, we deserve judgment and condemnation, but You endured so much. Lord Jesus endured all of this mocking and this suffering on our behalf. And we bless You and we praise You. You are the cause of our salvation. You alone. And we give You the glory and the praise in Jesus' name.